The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of the owner, staff, or management of this radio station. dragon indeed. Right, because the red, red dragon beat the white dragon, and that's how it all starts. That's right. And why, why is uh, one part of the flag green and one part of the flag white? Oh, come on. <laughs> Don't make me work. <laughs> so you, well, you brought it up. Why is it? Uh, it represents the land and the sky. Oh, thank you very much. And I, I do know your patron said it's St. David. St. David, and I live uh, about five miles from the city and cathedral of St. David's, oh, wow. where, he's, where he's buried. Really? Hmm. Anyways, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Cal Cooper and Ron Kowak, and right here on Tojanet, Parax, Ghost Channel, and beyond. Ooh, speaking about Parax, I'm going to get on there. Um, but so Cal Cooper guest what? Steve Parsons apparently <laughs> well he filled the beans wrong. already our guest today of course is the rock parapsychologist himself uh, Mr. Cal Cooper it's medication time Ron medication time <laughs> why yes. is that Cal <laughs> medication time <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, yes hello how you doing Good. We, we miss you uh, somewhat. <laughs> I thought there'd be that sort of comment in there somewhere. Oh, I miss you guys too. How's it been going? Steve, you want to answer that? <laughs> well, as you two were having quite a, an interesting conversation, um, everything's going absolutely fine. We've got horrible summer weather, uh, but a heat wave is forecast, and um, I've got a terrible conference clash to try and sort out for later in September. Really, but apart from that, it's pretty normal. Hunky dory and okie cokey. Well, you, you know what's interesting is that I have got asked to speak at a UFO conference, which kind of surprises me. Why would that surprise you? Well, I'm a ghost guy, not a UFO guy. Not what you Perhaps they're desperate. <laughs> Oh, if that was the case, they would have contacted you. 
That's true. <laughs> that might be why I'm double booked for the same weekend in September. <laughs> so, so you, Cal- that's why you yeah. bought that telescope, isn't it, for UFO spotting? That one yeah. that's aimed at the neighbour's house. Uh, speaking of desperate, um, our guest tonight is, uh, I, I think he's on his knee because he's desperately trying to sell the last few remaining copies of his book. Uh, pushing it because of the next one, that's why. Just get, oh, got, get one lot out while the next lot come in. Yeah, get, you, get rid of your unsold stock cheap before you <laughs> get landed with another thousand to get rid of. <laughs> and for those who, who don't know, that uh, Cal will be coming over here along with Steve for a spirit quest uh, in the end of September, the beginning of October. And Cal uh, will have copies of his book, um, phone, Telephone Calls for the Dead. Oh, my God, I don't remember it now. And you've got a box of them in your house, right? I know. I still How could you forget more than now in my office? But anyway, um, Cal, this, this was your first book, and and uh, for those who don't know Cal, of course, he is a parapsychologist. Is, is that proper calling you a parapsychologist? I'm a psychologist first and foremost, but um, the area of psychology in which I specialize in is parapsychology and anomalous experiences. So I can either have the title of psychologist or parapsychologist. Wow, that's amazing. No, I just think it's it's really amazing, right? I mean, St. David would be proud of you, too. So anyway, um, you wrote the book, uh, Telephone Calls from the Dead, which I find absolutely intriguing, and I know we've spoken about it before, but I think this is perhaps one of the, the most interesting eras of, of the paranormal in that the idea of receiving actual phone calls from the dead in, in many different ways. So you, you want to tell us a little bit about it, first of all, how you get involved in writing it, and from there, you know, how was the research? I mean, was, did it intrigue you? Uh, did it surprise you? So forth. Um, I think... When it first came up, um, I was just scanning the internet and noticed um, the case that happened in California of Charles Peck getting involved in a a train crash and allegedly um, uh, sending mobile phone calls to his um, family. And it turns out he died on first impact, but the way that the media had publicised it was that it was a telephone call from the dead. And I was was reading a lot of um, literature by Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayliss at the time um, around about 2009 or so, and I stumbled across one book that they'd written together, and it's probably the only um, joint authorship that they did, even though they worked together quite often, um, and that was Phone Calls from the Dead. Um, I bought the book, but then I just stuck it on a pile of books of, uh, that, that I had to read. I didn't really pay much attention to it. I just presumed that throughout psychical research literature, there must be accounts dotted about, or at least some studies, on specifically people having paranormal telephone calls. And it wasn't until I picked it up, started to read it, um, get really into the book, that I actually had a scan of the literature. I went through um, journals of the American SPR and the British SPR, and I couldn't find any other cases or mentions of it or reference to the book. Um, So I thought, well, if I continue looking at their publications, I'll find more. Um, So in a book called um, Life After Death by Scott Rogo, which was done in 1986, there's a chapter in there, And there's also The Case for Life After Death by Raymond Bayliss and Dr. Elizabeth McAdams, and that has a chapter in there. But aside from that, they didn't actually do any more research. They collected the cases and left it there. So I started to 
look for these cases myself and start to write about it. And lo and behold, because technology has advanced, I'm starting to see um, some evidence of people reporting text messages and emails as well. So did it, did it like, uh, surprise you that there was so much out there and when you started this? Oh, well, that's the thing. It surprised me because there wasn't so much out there. Um, it was only when I actually started to dig and right. speak to people that they would tell me of their personal accounts. In terms of publications, there was hardly anything mentioned about this. You really had to dig quite deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only after I did a, a few articles and a peer-reviewed paper on it um, that I thought it's time to maybe compile this into a new book because the original book was a study of 50 cases and the new book is another 50 cases and a new analysis to see if anything has changed in 30 years. Certainly the technology is advanced. So has the characteristics of the call types changed at all? Um, you have call types where someone is aware that someone's just died, they're grieving, they get a telephone call and it's very brief with a few words and some static on the line. And other ones where people are not aware anything's happened, um, their friend rings them as usual, let's say Joe rings them, they speak to Joe for 30 minutes, put the phone down, and then Sam turns up at the door and says, did you hear about Joe? He died in a car crash yesterday. And you think, well, it can't be possible, I've just literally spoken to him. And it's on recalling what you spoke about, you realise a lot of the things discussed were very final. And um, check with the phone call companies as well. There were some accounts where there was just no log whatsoever of the call taking place, but there could be multiple witnesses um, for the conversation and the actual telephone call taking place, whether or not the call company logged it or not. Um, So that brought on the new book, and as with the first book, after I did the new book, some additional information came up. I could only trace um, paranormal um, electrical communication accounts back to the... About 1913, but it was, I think I managed to find a case from about 1896 of a paranormal telephone call, which was an accident in a a factory that took place. There was only one guy working that day, and a phone call went through to the um, manager of the factory, said that, um, heard some voice say there was an accident, he had to come quick, turned up to the factory, and the guy was there unconscious, and there was no one else in the factory. Um, Certainly no one to have actually used the telephone. So who or what sent this message, we don't know. And also in Elliot O'Donnell's book, um, Ghosts Helpful and Harmful, um, there's a whole account in there of a phone call that shouldn't have taken place. And that was a call to a local doctor, said that Mr. X is unwell. And he says, certainly, I'll be there right away. I'll call straight at his house. He turns up at the house. The maid answers the door. She says, oh, um, doctor, it's nice to see you. Please go through to the parlour. She doesn't know why he's turned up. She goes um, upstairs to fetch Mr. X. And she rushes back and says, oh, quickly, Mr. X has just collapsed. Goes in and he discovers that Mr. X, only at the point of him turning up, had actually collapsed and had fallen quite ill. And it was a life-saving thing, the fact that the doctor was there to actually do what he needed to do to save Mr. X's life. And was insistent that no one had called him to actually turn up to the house. Checked all the staff and the serving staff. None of them had used the telephone that day. It was early accounts of telephone calls that simply shouldn't have taken place, but they did. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, I, I, it's a, I, that was a hard way of saying it, but uh, I'm, I'm just so intrigued by it. Did you classify the types of phone calls? Did you? I mean, you have 50 cases from the first book, and, and an additional 50 cases that you researched. Were you? Is that enough of a sample to be able to uh, classify the calls? Oh. 
sometimes a sample doesn't necessarily matter, especially when we're working with these, but um, in psychology and most social sciences, if you want to look at a nice average distribution of what's happening in general with a certain type of phenomenon, it's better to have a bigger sample. With a bigger sample, you have more power and you can relate this better um, to an overall population within a certain area. But I collected cases, some were from the USA, some were from Italy, Spain, Germany, the UK. So they spread about to make up the 50 cases, and I think the same with the, uh, the first sample that Rogan Bayless looked at. So we discussed this idea of people that knew that Sauna died, and then they have a phone call, and it's very brief. Those are called type 1 simple calls. The next ones, where you don't know someone's died and discover afterwards, they're called prolonged calls because the conversation is prolonged because you don't know that the caller is actually dead at the time the call's taking place. The other one's called answer calls. Now, they can involve either a mixture of the living or dead. It's where you make a phone call to either someone that couldn't possibly have been in the house at the time to take the call, but still someone answered with their voice and characteristics. They might have been away for the weekend, and yet you've got witnesses to say that you actually made the call to them. Or you call someone, they pick up the phone, you have a conversation, then after the call's taken place, you realise they died the day before so they couldn't possibly have been in to take, uh, take the call. So answer call because you make the call and someone answers it, but they shouldn't um, have done it in terms of uh, um, the rational, really. that It just shouldn't have taken place. Um, type 4 we call mixed calls um, because they involved a combination of type 1 and type 2 calls. When Rogan Bayless first started their analysis, they called type 1 and type 2 apparent calls. There was no definition between the two. They just assumed them to be cases of phone calls from dead people. Um, so I found that in extending the analysis, there was actually a little bit of a difference between some of the counts. You could know that someone's dead and repeatedly call them and speak to them as much as you want. Or you could have um, an opposite one where you're aware someone has died, yet you still get a call from them, and it's very brief and unresponsive. So it was a mixture of the main characteristics of type 1 and 2, so they were called mixed. And the fifth and final one is intention calls. This is where we intend to call someone, but the last minute we change our mind. But with the intention, we have a particular topic or conversation in mind. And because we've decided not to call that person, somehow later down the line during the day... They either call us back or leave an answer phone message saying, um, oh, you left me a message this morning wanting to talk about going to the football match tomorrow. Um, I'm sorry I missed your call. Or you rang me this morning about the football match. Oh, I just forgot what you said about how we're going to get there. Are you driving or am I driving? And lo and behold, you're absolutely shocked and stunned because you know you didn't make the call, but you, wouldn't, you let's say you intended to um, at 10 a.m. and that's when they say, oh, you called me this morning at 10 and you said such and such. You didn't make the call, but you intended to. So it creates these almost two alternative paths of reality. The version of you that did um, make the call, that they briefly get to see and experience, and the version of you that didn't, which is what you experience and you go away and do something else. So those are our five call types. Simple, prolonged, answer, mixed, and intention. Okay. <laughs> That's, I mean, it, it's all intriguing, but we actually have a, a, a question from the... Um, told you that, not the tells you, excuse me, the Parallax chat room, and they want to know if uh, these calls all happened on landlines or were cell phones involved at all? Um, with the original one, cell phones hadn't really been brought in by that point. The first book was published in 1979, and I think the only glimpse of new technology they got was a mention in their book that they had two accounts of answer phone messages. 
<clears throat> and one of them turned out to be a blatant hoax, and they even said they discovered it to be. The other one, they didn't know what to do with it because um, it didn't fit into the other 50 cases of someone actively speaking to someone live on the telephone. Uh, with this new study, though, there has been a mixture. We've got um, old accounts with the landlines, new accounts with the landlines, mobile phone calls, text messages, emails, and then some really dodgy accounts of um, other electrical equipment going a bit um, bizarre and doing certain things, um, which I kind of mentioned towards the end of the book, but they're not part of the analysis. It's specifically um, any incident that involved the phone and something that just shouldn't really have taken place, and um, more so hopefully where there were multiple witnesses involved so I could actually follow it up and um, interview a number of people rather than just a single call, a uh, single receiver of the call. But, yeah, it's happened on a variety of technologies. How do you get multiple witnesses to a mobile phone call, to a phone uh, call? Multiple witnesses in terms of the fact that someone else was there to verify that, yes, I remember them taking the call at the time and they were speaking ah, to the person right. for a certain... It wasn't like, pop, pop me on speakerphone, darling, I'm coming through from the other side. Well, there's, there's a few cases, uh, maybe two or three, where in the prolonged ones, so this is where they discovered after the call that the person had died, I have a few cases on record where they pass the phone around, like you do when it's a family member that lives miles and miles away. You say, oh, do you want a word, and you pass the phone around. So that seemed to happen in a couple of cases, so there was multiple witnesses in that case. But the multiple witness in the other cases that I mentioned, that's more so just people verifying, yes, they spoke to them for a certain length of time, I remember them taking the call, and they spoke about this, but they're only obviously getting half the conversation. It's only the receiver of the call that knows what's happened to the full extent. Right. I'm with you. So, I'm with so, you. Okay. thought you'd fallen you, asleep, Steve. No, you were... Um, <laughs> you don't need me to keep butting in. I was just asking a question. That's... I, I, I'm actually interested in your take on this. I mean, Mr. Parascience has a different look on things than... Mr. Van Helsing, so I'm interested uh, on, on your thoughts on this. Um, well, I, I, to be honest with you, I would just defer to Cal, because Cal has done extensive research on the subject, and not just mm-hmm. Cal before Cal, um, uh, Rogan Bayliss, mm-hmm. that's correct, isn't it? Um, and there's nothing really I can add to the subject. I mean, there are, you know, very, very compelling accounts, but... I, that's that's so much the case so often within psychical research. You have a wealth of compelling information or evidence and accounts that suggest that something might be possible. The dead are contacting the living, for example. But equally, you have a, uh, a lot of compelling cases where once it's been examined in depth, it's been found to be a more mundane cause. And that's, that's, I think that isn't that the eternal problem. Um, you know, one day you'll find yourself reading a re- um, some information uh, that, that has you damn near convinced, and then the following day you read something else, and it has you damn near convinced that the whole thing is flim-flam. Um, and so... I love, I love that expression, flim-flam. Flim-flam. Um, it, it's 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 the eternal puzzle. We it comes from the French know. for Flanders. Does it? No, I just made that up. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, in, in terms of whether people can receive phone calls from from their deceased relatives, uh, then they say they do, and I have no reason to disbelieve them. But there is, you know, there are a lot of cases where when it's been looked at, it's been found to be a, a more normal cause. Mm. Well, 
well, give, eternal, us an example. give us an example, Steve. You can't just throw that out there and, and say, well, you know... There's the person, no, to, the, I can give the person to ask for examples is Cal, because yeah. Cal, is, Cal is, the, is the leading expert on the subject, not me. Yeah, the wow. telephone guy. <laughs> when um, it comes Steve, to telephones, when it chat comes lines. To... <laughs> I mean, I was around when the phone was invented, so I know quite a bit about them. So. Oh, really? Was that... Uh, when you used to have to pull the two tins together, Ron, to get the string tight in the middle. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, so Cal, uh, Steve made that statement that that some of them were. What was the exact? I can't remember your exact words, Steve, but basically that it was flim uh, flam. Uh, um, have there been actual examples where some of these phone calls have been discredited? Yeah, there's been loads. I think. Um, with, and like what? What was? The, what? Explain those to me. I just. Well, I'll, I'll I, get to it if you just give me a chance. <laughs> but you know, once you get going, Cal, we can't. We, we can't get a word edgewise, so that's we have to get it in the beginning. Edgewise. Yeah. It's a word like flim flam. It's from the French word. All right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I Long think eventually, Flanders. when I got all the accounts together, I'm sure there was about eighty cases and or so um, that I got, but about thirty of them there was just either there wasn't enough evidence to really follow it up and it was just someone on the off chance saying that was a phone call from the dead and oh, what could we have here um prime example um someone's asleep they hear the telephone ringing they wake up they check the phone and the phone hasn't actually gone off at all and they said oh so it must be paranormal because the phone didn't register it but i definitely heard the ringing and my father had died the day before so, you know, we've got a lot of rational explanations we can put in place there. It's the first night of sleep since l losing someone close, and they're possibly thinking about that, and then that might actually enter their dreams. And typically they might actually dream of the dead. Um, there's no way of knowing whether it's actual communication with the dead or not in their dreams, but that's a different matter. What we have here is them waking up saying the telephone's ringing. Um, so we could put that down to the hypnopompic state. When you wake up and you've confused dreams with reality, it um, kind of creates this active hallucination that seems very real. And they check the phone. They've said that it hasn't registered a ringing, but they're convinced that it must have done because their phone is right next to them. And ah, is... well, are you aware of, of um, phantom phone ringing or phantom uh, phone vibration syndrome? Thank you, Steve. Oh, I've Which is the sensation and false belief that your mobile phone, uh, you can feel it ringing or vibrate. You can actually hear it ringing or feel it vibrating in your jacket pocket. Yeah, I've had that um, in my trousers before. Well, that was too much information, wasn't it? Um, but that, <laughs> it, it's actually, it's, it's a very commonly reported phenomenon within psychology. Um, and I think there's, I, I can't remember what it's called now. Is it something like hypovibrochondria or something? That sounds just about right. Um, and it's, you know, people walking along, check, oh, I've got to check my phone. My phone's just gone off. I felt it vibrate. Um, and, um, but it's apparently ha it has a psychological uh, cause. So um, <laughs> could that be related well, to this idea of, of people, you know, thinking that the phone was about to ring when in fact Certainly it had or hadn't? Certainly in a waking state, but in, in this particular example I've given, they've woken up saying that they heard the phone ringing, woke up, turned to actually check the phone. You know, they're not sure whether they dreamt it and then checked the phone or woke up to hearing the phone ringing, which is what woke them up, and turned around to find out that it's not actually ringing. 
nor does it actually say that anyone's wrong. They've just presumed that all the events from that death are actually linked. Um, there's some... Um, uh, there's some maybe in the waking state where they've checked the phone and it says unknown number, and because it's related to a recent death, they've actually presumed that it's the dead trying to call them. Um, again, we've got no way of knowing where that call's come from unless you really want to trace it, but we've had some more bizarre ones that... Th- there's one at the moment that I'm just following up. They keep on getting a missed call from the landline of their sister, their daughter, who died about... Uh, probably about six months ago now, and they're getting repeated calls on all their mobile phones from her landline number, and it keeps on registering. They sent me screenshots of the the landline actually registering her name, and I think the phone was disconnected, and they own the property, and it's not actually uh, vacant at the moment. So yeah, but it, what 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 is certainly the case, and and is well known, is that for example, if you um, move house or cease to uh, continue using your landline or mobile phone, uh, some of the telecommunications companies do, in fact, resell the number on. So yeah. if you've got a number stored in your phone and, you know, some years later, some months later, uh, that mobile number is passed or that landline number is passed to another to another vendor. Um, Good detective work, Steve. You know, they, they ring it. It's a case of it's going to come up as your, you know, your, your contact that's right. Uh, the weird thing they've been having with theirs, though, is they the phone never actually rings or vibrates when it comes from that landline number. And they've had at least a good 50 missed calls from this landline number and have never, ever been able to answer it in time or it wouldn't answer when they were there to actually see the phone ringing. But I think the majority of the time, they were never about when they got this missed call. Yeah, I don't want to... I don't wanna, um... Throw, throw, be the elephant in the room here, but isn't the obvious one there to go to the the uh, telecoms provider and say where are these calls coming from because they can be back traced? Definitely. Yeah, but I've, 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 I mean, why hasn't why hasn't the investigator done that before? You know, before immediately assigning it as you know, oh my god, that's paranormal. I haven't. I haven't. This case is brand new. I'm just telling you. <laughs> well, we just spoilt it. We just put the elephants in the room. I'm just following we? it up at the moment. I'm following the lines <laughs> of inquiry. I've only just got the screenshots of the stuff. Let me do it at the time. You're so impatient, like Ron. Talk about medic meds. I think someone's missing this. <laughs> Honestly, have so- you actually done any research for this book? <laughs> 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 He's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> Cal, you're still working, then you're still receiving uh, uh, calls, I guess, uh, people who, who say they have calls, and, and you're still uh, researching this? Um, yeah, um, I did say when I finished the book that I'd still continue doing it, and that's what Rogan Bayless intended to do. Um, so I desperately tried to search for any of the studies that they did, and like I said, I only found these two chapters in each of their um, different books that they did following phone calls from the dead. Um, so one way that I managed to get additional information for my book was for looking for their files. Um, Raymond Bayless's files are at the University of Virginia, and all of Scott Rogo's files are in the Californian Institute um, for Integral Studies in San Francisco. And um, they managed the library there. They managed to copy me all of Rogo's files, everything that I needed. They went through boxes and boxes of this stuff and found an additional file that said new cases. And lo and behold, it turned out to be all telephone-related stuff and some cassette tapes um, with people saying they were having phone calls from the dead or repeated so we're, actually, 
You have to hold that thought because we have to take a break right now. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parsons and Ron Cohen and our very special guest, the rock parapsychologist himself, Mr. Cal Cooper. And we'll be right back after the following messages right here on Tojanet Pararex Ghost Channel and beyond. And we actually have a couple of questions we'll have to answer after the break, so we'll be right back. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. Cal Cooper, rock star parapsychologist, and the ageing Van Helsing on Togginet, <laughs> Ghost Chronicles, Para X, and beyond the rest of the universe. Uh, Cal is trying to con- try- Cal is uh, trying to convince us that he's um, actually read a book <laughs> that uh, dead people phone up the living <laughs> and try and sell them PPI. <laughs> try and sell them PPI claim insurance or something yeah. like that. Uh, Is that actually, correct? We, 
We had a question, didn't we? Yeah, we had a question. You're listening, of course, to Close Chronicles. Don't know that. Don't they? International Tojinet Pararex Ghost Channel. Yeah, did all um, Did all From the Pararex chat room, and I, and I know you can answer this question, Cal. I absolutely know it. Uh, okay. Has there ever been any documented information about a phone call on a phone that wasn't hooked up? No, next question. No, I'm only joking. Yes, <laughs> that's bull. There's been a few cases, a few cases where people um, were receiving. Um, that's a strange noise. Receiving phone calls from a phone that had been disconnected for ages in a building, and it wasn't until afterwards, when they checked with the building staff, that they found out that the phone wasn't active. Or there was a classic case, which I'll quickly run through, that's uh, mentioned in the book. And there's a guy called Chris. He was um, having a few family troubles, maybe relationship troubles and didn't really want to stick around. He wanted to kind of get away to the um, coast for a while, go to the beach, and just be with himself, really. So in the USA, he drove out to the coast, looked around and found a nice little place to stay, um, sort of bed and breakfast type place, owned by a woman who said, just call me grandma, lovely old lady, and there was a room to um, let. She took him up to the room, and he noticed the room was full of antiques. It was a very nice room, very peaceful, felt quite at home straight away, and especially Grandma as well. She said, if you need anything, just call. And that evening, he went out for a walk along the beach um, just to clear his head and maybe go for a drink as well, something to eat. Comes back to the room, it's about 11 o'clock at night, and the telephone rings in his room, an old wall telephone. Um, So he goes up to the wall, answers the telephone, and his father's there. And he says, ah, there you are, Carl. Um, I've been trying to get hold of you. Um, your mother has been wanting to speak to you. She wants to speak to you now. It's quite urgent, in fact. And so um, he says, well, just call her to the phone. And he says, I can't. I'm not with her at the moment. And he says, well, Dad, where are you? And he says, oh, I'm in a very beautiful place, but be sure to call your mother. And the phone goes dead. Um, so he puts the phone back down the receiver. He picks it up again, and he winds the crank on the side of the phone. No matter how much he winds the crank, he can't get through to the operator. He can't seem to get a line on the telephone. So he just goes to sleep, forgets the whole thing, found it very strange, but thought maybe he might try again the next morning. Goes to sleep, wakes up, goes down to breakfast, and Grandma's there, and he recounts the um, telephone call to Grandma, and she says, well, you couldn't possibly have received a telephone call from your father. Um, That telephone that I have in your room, it's just one of the many antiques that my late husband bought. There's nothing inside the telephone. There's no wiring anymore. It's just fixed to the wall. Um, So you best call your mother. So she hands him a telephone, a modern one. He calls his mother, and on the first ring she answers, and she tells him that um, she's been frantically trying to get hold of him because no one knew where he was. And at 11 o'clock the night before, his father had died of a heart attack, the same time he'd allegedly received this call on a telephone that was no longer active. So that's one case for you there. I mean, that's really a cool case. So that is beyond explanation, correct? It's beyond bizarre. No. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Is it really beyond explanation? No, no, no. no. I know, Steve. There there are explanations we can put to it. When he actually recounted this tale to Rogan Bayless, first of all, they didn't actually take it quite seriously. They... They were insistent that the whole account was perhaps fraudulent or he was making up. He got quite angry with that, and so not only did he he initially submit an account to them, and then he didn't like their replies, he submitted the whole account to Fate magazine. And then after they paid attention to him, because Rogo was one of the editors at the time of Fate magazine, he then went back for re-interviewing with Rogo and Bayless, and they took 
the full account and Bayless went round to interview him in person. And I, when I looked at the account, it was very odd because he said after the call, he said just a, a joking remark that, oh, you know, I just uh, treat it as though, you know, maybe I was just dreaming or something like that. The fact that he was getting ready for bed but still said, I must have been dreaming. So was he in bed at the time and got up and thought he answered the call or was he in bed and actually dreamt the call? It's not actually quite clear. He's the only sole witness to this event. And he even doubts his own sort of um, sanity or rationality in the whole experience. But just but very let, casually. It's, he's very quick at sweeping it under the carpet. But let me, let me add this to it. It, it, it. It's very normal for us to rationalize everything that happened. The farther we get away from the incident, the more our brain begins to operate and make, try to make sense of what we witnessed, though, what happened. And so you will find that, that the farther away from an incident, people's stories begin to change. Yeah. Disagree. Yeah, but, but, but psychology actually, uh, when they're, when they're uh, looking at testimony of witnesses, right. um, that's actually taken into consideration, the fact that if there is too much consistency between the, uh, the answers over a period of time, it would be more suggestive of perhaps, um, I was going to say fraud or, or a, an imperfect memory, um, a fantasy situation. Whereas, because what happens in a fantasy situation is the more, the more you repeat the fantasy, the more fixed it becomes. Exactly. Whereas... Uh, as you said, uh, in, in the case of reality, over time, the events become uh, disjointed, hazy, um, and less well-remembered. Right. Mm. I mean, but, in I mean, this case... We, you... we touched about this on last week. I'm not even a psychologist than I know. Yeah, but, but we talked, touched upon this last week about the magician. And, yes. and the magician can place thoughts in someone's mind even though it's not really what happened. So... The, and, and the questioning itself could even affect the outcome of the witnesses' uh, testimony That's over very time. Oh, gosh, yeah. I, uh, we, we, yeah. Sorry, go on. The psychologist should really be answering that. I was about to say, the most famous studies for that and um, in testing that is Elizabeth Loftus. And um, she looked at eyewitness testimony in the scene of accident, so particularly um, car crashes, for example. And there is uh, there's several tests that she run on an exactly uh, exact same scene. It was a sketch of a car waiting at a crossroads, with a stop sign in one, and a giveaway sign in the other. Um, but they also looked at testimony where they said specific questions to the person involved, and in one set of questions they said, "Did you see the stop sign?" And virtually everybody said yes. And then in the second set they said did you see a stop sign? And in that one, people that were presented with the giveaway sign, they all said, well, obviously not. But if they had the giveaway sign, and then someone said, did you see the stop sign? They immediately said yes, because it, the question implied there was one there. So they just ignored what was actually there and fabricated it with something else. Not intentionally, it's because the suggestion led to something that created a false memory of the event. They've just got this vague picture that's being built up for them by the questioning and the recall. So if you don't structure the questions right in the recall, then it could lead to false memories, which the um, percipient or witness to the event is going to believe themselves, especially over time as well. Exactly. 
mean, that, that's the intriguing thing. So, I mean, as much as a witness is, is so important in what we do, uh, it's also probably the weakest link in in what we do, in that it, it can change over time. Uh, their reality and reality changes over time. Yeah, but the other problem, of course, you've got is the witness is normally your only piece of information. I know. One so way we're another. in a catch-22 type of thing. I mean, yeah, how, how do we deal you, with this? If you throw out, and as many skeptics tend to do, completely disregard the witness, in, in, mm. in effect, they're correct because there's nothing left worth investigating because you've just set, turned around and said, well, do you know what? The only thing we've got to investigate, we've decided is meaningless because it's subjective, and therefore there's nothing to investigate, therefore the whole of the paranormal is nonsense. And that's the role that some skeptics actually start taking. Wow. Um, you have to, you have to take on board the witness statement um, as a as a, uh, a de facto piece of information because that's what it is, and that's all you've got to go on. Um, yeah. Then you know there are there are techniques that you can use to try and test its veracity. And part of that might be, for example, to look at the mode uh, of the answers, to look at the, the techniques for questioning. And that's done within, for example, forensic psychology when they're looking at um, the questioning of, of suspects. But it also is part of the investigation process. Does what the witness say they experienced match up with uh, the reality of the location? If, for example, they said that they saw a spirit walking uh, in a particular way through a particular door, could they actually have seen that from the position they were in? Um, and indeed, there have, there have been many cases where the witness has claimed to have seen things that took place in a completely different room when mm -hmm. somebody went along and actually took the trouble to to uh, examine the testimony. Yeah, eyewitness testimony, I find it extremely valid evidence as well, more so if it's backed up with something else. But if we've got nothing else to go on, then we need to really structure the interviewing process as tightly as we can. And I totally disagree when you hear people kind of arguing against saying that eyewitness testimony is useless. Um, people like um, Alan Murdy, who's uh, he is chairman of the Ghost Club, isn't he, Steve? Is he? Yes, he is. Yeah, chairman yes. of the Ghost Club. And he's also um, a lawyer as well. And um, he's forever arguing with eyewitness testimony, saying that it's a very good approach to take to the paranormal. Yet there are people saying it's unreliable, it's not scientific, um, it can lead to bad memory recall. Yes, if it's not applied properly, but we rely on it so much that it's used in court to, um, as, to testify people and convict them, even in some cases in the US, to actually have someone sentenced to death on purely an eyewitness testimony. Well, then they can phone up afterwards and say whether it was right or not. Yeah, and say, I'm innocent, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, the world's I mean, first if controlled it, telephone call from the dead experiment. It's, uh, it's, it's a case of suiting people in one situation and not in the other. If you can actually use eyewitness testimony to actually validate a crime or not, and it goes through the legal system having someone imprisoned, and that's fine. Why is it not fine to use it in the case of someone saying they've seen a ghost? Uh, so, well, if I could answer that, the, the simple answer has to be is because the, the sceptic's belief system is... Um, it suits the sceptic to, to skew the, the, the whole thing that way, because uh, whilst they accuse believers of being blind, um, blinded to the truth... Um, by their, you know, their false beliefs in an afterlife, the sceptics are also blind, blinded to the truth often uh, by their uh, blind, you know, their, their sort of belief in science 
or their belief mm. that the dead... It's too preposterous an idea to exist. Therefore, you know... And it, it, it's not that dissimilar to the situation, you know, um, almost a thousand years ago, um, when people... <laughs> We're try, you know, people, uh, scientists were trying to convince the church and the populace that, hey, do you know what? The Earth goes round the sun. The sun doesn't go round the Earth. What a oh, lot definitely. of nonsense! You know, it, it, you are dealing fundamentally with with people's beliefs, and if a skeptic, you know, skeptics are as bad and as biased as believers in many cases. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, the, the... well, that's shut up. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> you did that very well, very well indeed. So, have you ever heard of the cases where someone has actually tried to telephone the dead? Yeah, type three. Type three calls are the ones in which people attempt to telephone um, the dead. Um, no, are they, but they don't know they're dead. No, uh, well. Um, Oh, there, there were some that were the genuine type threes, and it was accidental. They didn't realise till afterwards. There were some very rare cases that are kind of either mentioned in the history in the book or in miscellaneous accounts, where there was a famous um, theatre act in the 1920s or 30s called the the Psychic Telephone or something along that, and it was oh, a yeah, telephone. Yeah, yeah, it would hover out on fishing wires into the audience. People think it was floating down, levitating. And then the telephone would reach someone in the theatre audience, they'd pick it up, and they'd speak to um, an alleged dead relative. And backstage, there was different people on um, receiving sets that would actually speak and be the voice on the telephone. The guy on stage, the Marvel, he would stand there and he had um, a listening set underneath his turban. And the metal plates that were attached to his shoes on the stage allowed the whole system to kind of work. So he could actually psychically tune in with this alleged dead person and speak to the person in the audience as well. It was all a very clever setup. But later on, to cut a long story short, there was a guy in the audience that was very impressed by the whole thing, seriously thought he was getting in contact with his wife and wanted some private sessions. And um, one of the stagehands turned up one day to find out that this guy, George, was sat with the marble with this telephone speaking to his wife. And he thought, wow, this guy's actually paying money out of the kind of um, performance just to use this telephone. The tricks really got to him. So he quickly snuck back into the dressing room to see who's on the other end of the receiving set, thinking it's maybe the marble's wife doing it. There's no one there. The receiving set's completely empty. He goes back and sees this guy, George, still talking um, on the phone. So he goes back, he picks up the headset and hears a woman's voice on the telephone, uh, on the telephone replying to this guy. Oh, that's just creepy. It, it was a phone that wasn't active. And later on, I think the Marvel actually sold the telephone to the guy. And he took it home and he said if ever he needed to speak to his wife, if there was trouble with his family or any life troubles, he'd just pick up the phone and she was on the other end. She would never answer the phone if everything was day-to-day -day normal. If there was something he was panicking about or was worried, she'd be there to comfort him, reassure him, or give him whatever advice that he needed. But it, wow. it creeped them out. No one. They had no way of explaining it. They just gave him the telephone. Yeah. So it was a telephone intended to be a psychic um, fraud, trickery, that later turned out to have a, a sort of genuine component for one person. It seemed to work for someone. They could speak to the dead whenever they liked. Uh, I find that, find that funny because I know that, like, many haunted houses, uh, the ones that people, you know, uh, set up, uh, 
have been reportedly haunted as well. So that's an interesting uh, scenario that, you know, how can you tell a haunted house, fake mm. haunted house is well, haunted? <laughs> well, one that um, appeared to be a haunted telephone was one that um, Raymond Bayless and um, I've forgotten the guy's name. I think it might have been Cecil Smith. Um, they investigated a haunted telephone at an old um, railway station or depot. And they went there, people had heard this ringing, but there was no telephone within the building. So they kept oh, wow. checking throughout the building, looking for wires and so forth. Couldn't find anything. If they went to one end of the depot, it sounded like it was coming from the other end. If they went to the other end, it sounded like it was coming from where they'd just been. And they couldn't find anything. However, there was a lumber yard across the road, so they went over there to check and see if there was an outside bell that indicated that the telephone was ringing inside one of the offices. Lo and behold, there was an outside bell. They asked them to ring it periodically as they walked back to the depot, and they could hear it up to a point. As soon as they got back in the depot, they couldn't hear it anymore. Um, but then they went back on a windy day, and it turns out when the wind was in the right direction, it was carrying the, si uh, the sound waves of the outside bell even further and echoing throughout the depot. So it sounded like there was a ringing telephone inside there. So what, turned out, uh, what seemed to be paranormal turned out to have a rational explanation, but you really had to put your thinking cap on and think outside of the box and outside of the depot to find the explanation. Do you know that in, in the United States, we talked about testimony earlier, there is actually a case in 1897 where uh, someone's testimony of a ghost actually convicted a person. There are, there are actually cases uh, that predate that over here, Ron. I think the earliest may... I can't remember it off the top of my head... Um, but I think it's 16, uh, the late 17th century, um, a ghost convicted, Google it somebody quick, uh, a ghost convicted um, somebody in the court of law by giving testimony. Did the ghost do it or how did the ghost? Uh, if I remember, the, uh, I think the ghost actually gave testimony. But I say it's, it's, um, it's been a while since you, I call that. Somebody, somebody will be Googling it frantically and come up with the answer in one of the chat rooms in a, bit, a, a minute or so's time. Please. I thought I heard of a more recent uh, one that was of a ghostly gardener that kept annoying you with a strummer, Stephen. He called the police on you or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that a genuine one? No, I'm just giving time for somebody to Google the, um, the 17th century one. Well, in 1897, the Greenbrier ghost is the one, and, but the ghost actually spoke through... Uh, the mother of the victim, who, uh, and it, it was accepted. I mean, we, we talk about testimony. We talk about how skeptics, uh, you know, discount the eyewitness uh, testimony. Well, here we have, uh, I guess you would say, secondhand and, and talk about ghosts as well. So it, it, yet it was accepted in a court of law, which is you know, always interesting. So, so Cal, uh, I know you've got a new book coming up, and um, I know we're also running out of time, but we're going to have you on the show uh, when that officially comes out. And yeah. I am excited to to have you back over here in uh, September and October. Um, How excited. And, uh, yep. Uh, Not that you know, excited. <laughs> yep. Uh, Steve and I already have some plans for you so that, you know, you don't have to worry too much. That's very lovely of you. Thank you very much. Okay, so we did get someone from the 
We did get someone from the chat room. That's why I was killing time there. Uh, Cat from the Pararex chat room says, Wolf Manor's phone, first constructed in Aldenbury Estate, later the Clovis Avenue Sanitarium, was supposed to have somehow called 911 several times while not being connected. Well, it's a different one, but... so did you ever hear of that one where a phone not being connected in a sanitarium <laughs> uh, calls 911? Uh, no, I've not heard of that one. The one that always kept on being brought up every time I spoke to Dr. Richard Brown was the Rosenheim case. And that had a poltergeist that allegedly kept yeah. ringing the speaking clock. The what? At a, at a rate that was actually impossible uh, for a human to dial, and in the days before you had digital redialing, uh, it was mm. ringing at a fantastic rate. Uh, so much so that the, um, if I remember right, the tele- German telecoms company actually didn't believe. They thought that some machine had been um, put into the system in order to do this this sort of weird dialing. And, and that that was recent. What was the, what was the time period on that? On the. Was that the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, something like that. Um, John Belloff mentioned it quite a bit. In one of his books, there was a whole discussion on Rosenheim and brought in the the telephone incident. But also the Journal of Paraphysics at the time was really quite active and they were forever doing update reports on the Rosenheim poltergeist case um, or the Rosenheim haunting um, as it progressed. So, yeah, about 80s, early 80s. I mean... Late 70s, early 80s. (laughs) So let me ask you this, and and this is kind of looking, we now have amazing technology nowadays. Our testimony today, because of this tech, uh, all this amazing technology we have, is it less valuable than it was back in the olden days? For instance, we, you know, you can get on the Internet, you can bounce phone numbers off others and, and many other things it is and change voices and so much so is so would you find older uh, wit, eyewitness testimony versus today's eyewitness testimony uh, which would you find more reputable I think some things even technology withstands the test of time I remember going to your house Ron and your computer is a typewriter wired up to a television screen it works pretty well. It does the job for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I've advanced beyond uh, carrier pigeons like Richard Felix, so I feel really, I feel oh, really, a... uh, really good about that. Um, with the older, with the older eyewitness testimony, um, if you've got instructions saying who carried out the interview, what questions were asked, what the procedure was. Um, you know, you're pretty much sorted. There's nothing else you can do with the eyewitness testimony. If the person's still alive, maybe you could follow up and see if their memory recalls change much over time. Um, But pretty much you've got to kind of have um, faith in the investigator that kind of did the interview at the time. Otherwise, everyone will be doubting each other. Um, Any police officer that takes a statement, if they hand it to the next one, they might doubt the person, then they'd have to go back, and everybody would be re-interviewing everyone. There's only so much you can do. If you've done a proper procedure, you, you, you have to leave it there at some respect. You can't just keep on doubting everybody's evidence, especially when you're dealing with the paranormal. Otherwise, we'll forever be moving the goal, uh, uh, goalposts. And I've said this before when 
recording poltergeist activity or sound room activity. Um, let's say you have five cameras set up and you've got it from so many angles and you caught something moving in an area of a room where clearly no one was standing and it flew across the room and then landed. Um, you know, you could show that to someone and they could still doubt it, saying, well, there was hidden fishing wires here or there was a window open so it blew it across there. Even if someone has said within the report, that was checked, there was no fishing wire and stuff like that, you still might have people doubting it just because of the very nature of what it is. And as Steve said, who's also reviewing it as well? Is it a cynical person, a sceptical person? Is it a believer of the paranormal? So they're just going to accept it completely without question. You know, how, how is this person going to react depending on their prior belief system, right. their place in the research and so forth? You know, uh, we just about ran out of time. I heard the pizza from the dead is here, so we've got to get going. Um, you know, that's your next book, you know, tell, you know, doorbells from the dead. Um, but anyway, from the dead. If, <laughs> yum, if, yum. You know, because uh, the reason I bring this up, and we only get about a minute left, uh, Spooky from the uh, chat room, Tojinek chat room, said she had some calls and she kind of dismissed them. If someone does get these calls, uh, what is the proper way to, to document them, uh, Cal? Um, if you got a call and it was a conversation... Obviously, I'm not expecting anyone to have a tape recorder ready for every telephone call that they have, but at least if it was a bizarre one and it was very short, um, you've at least got a chance of having a pad and pen next to the phone and you write down what happened, note the exact time, and then ring back the telephone company and check what time it came in exactly, where it actually came from as well, the number, whereabouts was the location as well, just to check that, first and foremost, that it wasn't a prank. Um, if someone's pretending to be someone from the dead, have you upset someone recently that is aware of your uh, recent bereavement and they're actually going to try and impersonate someone, try and creep you out to get their own back in some way? Um, I discussed this at length with um, the late biologist and psychical researcher John Randall. He passed away a few years ago. And he said that it's cruel for someone to do that, but in human nature, people are just naturally very cruel in some cases. So it is... Well, like I'm going to be cruel and cut you off now because we're about to run off the end of the show, aren't we? Yep, and I guess this is Cal Cooper. If you want to check out his website, it is calcooper.com. Yes, Cal, thanks so much. Great to speak with you again. I'll see you in uh, September. Sounds like a song. Uh, Yes, you will. Good night. One last question. Steve, what's this about you going to tell him? to ghosties, long leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.